me to Matthew 20, 21. Matthew, the 21st chapter. It's interesting, this uh, year, our um, progression here through the book of Matthew, and uh, these pass, uh, pass, this passage falls on what we call Palm Sunday, and that's what this passage is based upon. And it uh, doesn't always work out that way every year when we go on through the book, but uh, uh, that happens this year. This is, by the way, is the 102nd message on the book of Matthew. So we've, this is the 102nd message, and so we've got a ways to go yet. Uh, I'm not going to make 200, I don't think, but uh, uh, you'll say amen to that probably. Anyway, this morning, we want to look at the Lord's triumphal entry and look at verses 1 through 11. I think sometimes that uh, majestic processions intrigue us. No doubt many of you remember seeing on television or perhaps in person, don't know if you had that opportunity, uh, to see the solemn yet majestic funeral procession of one of our presidents, like John F. Kennedy. I remember that as a boy, uh, uh, seeing that on television. Later on, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, uh, some of the men who uh, in our lifetime have died and they were presidents. Many times uh, superbly trained horses will pull the historic funeral procession or caisson through the uh, streets leading to the Capitol's rotunda. Soldiers will line the streets and uh, they'll salute the draped coffin as it passes by. Tear-streaked faces watch as the former presidents uh, remain solemnly or pass. And such an occasion of death, though majestic in its own right, stands in sharp contrast to the inauguration of a president or the coronation of a king or queen. Rather than tears, there are smiles and there are shouts of joy. Such events lay a foundation for a new beginning for the people. Coronation processions have long dazzled the minds of spectators lining streets to catch a glimpse. This was especially true in nations that have crowned a new sovereign to reign over them, intended to display the wealth and the power of the new sovereign, these processions spare no expense in achieving the sense of awe that, uh, from admiring subjects. Uh, the British monarch King George III, dressed in a spectacular coronation robe with a 27-foot-long train uh, made uh, of ermine and stitched with gold. His crown contained 12,314 diamonds. At his son's coronation, George IV, all of his father's regal attire was kept with the addition of the renowned Hope Diamond. For her coronation in 1559, Elizabeth I was carried through the streets of London on a golden litter. The grandeur of her heritage and reign was punctuated with five pageants along the streets. Elizabeth II, in our own day, was drawn through the City of London in a magnificent carriage drawn by eight matching horses, accompanied by royal attendants and guards, along with processions of bishops and dukes and lords. And if we were to put it in simple language, 
This kind of pageantry serves as an opening stream of public relations for the new monarch. Displays of wealth and power and honor put the citizens in their place as subjects and the monarch in his or her place as the sovereign. But Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was quite different. He entered to the cheers and multitudes thronging the holy city during Passover week. Some estimate that at Passover the city's population soared to no less than two million people crowding the street to celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from her bondage. Just days before the cross, Jesus is hailed as the king. His procession lacked the pageantry of mere earthly sovereigns. The Son of God did not need to resort to showy displays of wealth and power. You see, he had no interest in maintaining public relations with Israel. And for Jesus Christ, the way to the crown came by the way of the cross. Rather than wealth and power clothing this kingly coronation procession, gentleness and humility clothed the king. While the masses acclaimed him as a king, Jesus refused their throne. His kingdom was not bound by geography or limited by age. But much more, his kingship would bear only faint resemblance to the best kings of history, and each of them fading into nothingness at the sight of the king. And so Jesus Christ's triumphal entry is a call to recognize him as the king of kings and submit to him as the Lord of all. But most spectators on that day missed the significance of Christ's kingly procession. Faulty perceptions of Christ and his kingdom led to dangerous conclusions. And it still does. What do you think of Christ this morning? What do you think of Christ the King? I want us to look at this passage here in Matthew chapter 21 and begin by looking at the preparation for the King. The preparation all along the way to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ had reminded His disciples of what lay ahead. Back in chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, it says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn Him to death, and shall deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify Him, and the third day He shall rise again. Crucifixion had likely faded from their minds when they witnessed this swelling multitude of pilgrims hailing Christ as the Son of David. Maybe even some had found comfort in thinking, well, at last their intentions for Christ would take place in spite of the grim picture of crucifixion that he had painted. But they were mistaken, and thank the Lord that they were. Notice, first of all, the cross and the crown. Jesus had no intention to receive an earthly crown that bypassed the bloody sacrifice at the cross. The triumphal entry came as no surprise to Christ. He knew that it was coming. Now, Scripture had foretold it as prelude to the suffering of Christ. Jesus intentionally planned 
for the entry to Jerusalem. And why? That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Matthew, Matthew's quotation that from Zechariah showed the prophetic gaze 500 years down the pages of history to the day that the king would come to Jerusalem. Jesus had been to that city before, but now he returned as the king. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 and 10, it explains, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from river to the ends of the earth. Matthew here gives the footprint of that prophetic text. He says, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass in a colt, the foal of an ass. Now in the Old Testament, the Old Testament context makes it clear that this king came from a different focus than the 43 kings of Israel and Judah. They came to rule over particular geographical realms. They were limited by the spoils of war. Christ came to bring salvation to the nations. And most of the kings that served the two nations instead really served themselves. Most of them were evil men that led divided kingdoms into more sin and more idolatry. But Christ alone is just. And His dealings, as it says in Romans 3.26, the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. How could it happen that this king who came in such humble surroundings with no regal robes or royal carriage or mighty army could bring peace to the nations? The cross stood in the path of his eternal crown. All of the gospel writers relate the triumphal entry as a prelude to the cross. Perhaps Paul captures this best in showing the humility of the cross preceding the exaltation of Christ as Lord of all. When he said in Philippians chapter 2, and verse 5 through 11, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now notice, secondly, the people and the plan. Jesus Christ understood His mission, the cross, then the crown. He was pleased to use His disciples and some unnamed owners of the donkeys in the unfolding of the divine mission found in 
the triumphal entry on the way to the cross, I think it's important for us to see how our Lord took care of even the minute details of Old Testament prophecy that affirm Him to be the Christ. And I understand that the Lord and His disciples had traveled the 17 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, walking the gradual incline that took probably them some 3,000 feet higher than the Mount of Olives, or uh, higher than Jericho's low, low terrain. They paused at Bethphage, a small village near Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And notice it says in verse 1, Then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto thee, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. Now I think there are those who will debate whether Christ had prearranged with the owners for these donkeys to be borrowed and or whether he just knew that they existed because he was omniscient. You can debate that, and I don't think it makes much difference. Either way, he took care of the details. He planned each step of his journey to the cross. I think it's quite apparent that the omniscient Lord could have commanded the donkey and her colt to come to him. But Christ chose to use two disciples to serve him as well as the owners of the donkeys, to provide for him. He didn't have to do so, and yet, as he did, we find some instruction. First of all, think of how privileged we are to be the servants of such a great king. When David fled before Absalom, he met in the wilderness by Shobai, the son of Nahash, Machir, the son of Emuel, and Barzillai, the Gilead, bringing food and supplies for the dejected King David. When David was restored to his throne, he invited an old faithful friend, Barzillai, the Gileadite, to return with him so David could sustain him. <coughs> Barzillai declined not wanting to be a burden to his king, but he, that he loved and he found joy in serving him. Because he loved him, he served him out of that love and that loyalty. Now, can we do anything less? Knowing that our king has gone to the cross for us and has borne the judgment of God on our behalf, can we do anything less than these disciples these owners of the donkeys, or Barsilii did for David. It's not that our king is helpless, or it's not that he really needs us, because God lacks no ability, he lacks no resource or understanding to accomplish his pleasure. But our king finds delight in faithful servants as we serve Him. You might be the disciple that Christ sends on a special mission. Or you might be the owner of the donkeys that Christ says, I have need of them. Did you, I don't know if you read this morning's lesson in the Baptist Bread devotional. It was on that. 
It was interesting that the fellow said, can you imagine, you know, at your house, if you had a couple of vehicles sitting there, somebody, a couple of guys come along and hotwire them and say, you know, they start to drive off your driveway, and you say, wait a minute. And he said, well, God wants these vehicles. <laughs> can you imagine that? Well, these owners had the disciples come and say, our Lord needs, needs these donkeys. I want you to notice verse 6. It says, and the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Mark tells us that when the disciples came, the owners of the donkeys just let them go, or they gave them permission to take them for the Lord's use. Well, we have here two simple, clear principles for every Christian servant. Number one, whatever Christ commands, I will do. Number two, whatever he is pleased to use that he has entrusted to me, I will give. You see, selfishness and stubbornness and stinginess must never be a mark of a servant of Christ. By his grace, he includes us in his unfolding plans. So let us serve him faithfully, redeeming the time because the days are evil, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. By the way, that's not just talk about giving money. It talks about giving your time and your effort to serve Christ with a joyful attitude. And so we have here the preparation for a king. Secondly, we have the perceptions of a king. Now I know this is a very poor comparison, but we need to understand how jam-packed Jerusalem was during the Passover period. Now, if you've ever been to a large city like the Twin Cities or been to a Twins baseball game, or even in a busy airport like Washington, D.C., where we were just recently, you can get the idea of what it, kind of what it was like. People were everywhere. I read that in Jesus' day, Jerusalem had a population of 25,000, figuring the size of Passover crowd, ranging from 180,000 on a low to 3 million on the upper hand, end. Now, that's quite a difference, but even the lower figure would swell that city seven times its normal population. And let's just say, for safety's sake, the place was overflowing with people. Now, I know we don't have too much here in Spooner to compare that with, do we? I even went to the gun show yesterday, and it wasn't really that crowded. You'd think, you know, up here in northwest Wisconsin the gun shows would just be teeming with people, right? Well, I had room to walk around there and observe things, but no, we don't have too much to compare with it here in our city. But most of these pilgrims had not seen, they had not heard Jesus, but likely most of them had heard of him by the, those on a pilgrimage from the Galilean region. They were already in an emotional hive by the excitement surrounding the Passover. And added to this, Messiah fever, if you please, began, they began to contagiously sweep there through the masses. By the time Jesus made his entry, it says in the multitudes that went before that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And on top of this, when he entered the city, Matthew tells us, all the city was moved. Now, he used the word moved there. Now, that doesn't seem 
like too much, but it's a word, actually in the original, we get a word called seismic. And seismic means to rock or to agitate or to tremble or to, to quake. It almost felt like an earthquake. There were so many people and the, the place, the, the, the city was moved. In other words, the city shook with the excitement of the possible Messiah in their midst. What we notice here is of great importance as we consider even religious and in some so-called Christian movements in our own day, if excitement counted for true spirituality, then Jerusalem would have been off the scale at that point. While excitement is wonderful, it must not be the barometer of truth for us. Just because people get excited... And I can tell you're all excited this morning. You're just teeming with excitement. But just because people get excited doesn't mean it's a barometer for truth. You see, we must always turn back to the Scripture. We we must always test every spirit by the Word. You know, sometimes people say, well, that, that church is so big, it's so huge, it must be very spiritual. Not necessarily. Not if they're not teaching and preaching the truth of God's Word. We can get people excited, but many times that excitement is just emotions. And this is evident in the multitude's perception of Christ during the triumphal entry, and they're turning away from Him just one less than one week later. Now we notice here an earthly deliverer. It was not that the crown failed completely to their, in their confession of Christ. They were right to declare him to be the son of David and the one coming in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we might ask, what did they mean by calling Jesus the son of David? Well, the title goes back to the Lord's promise concerning David's son sitting forever on the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And they connected this with the prophetic Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23 that declare, The stone which the builders refuse has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The same messianic prophecy was quoted by Peter and later alluded to by Paul. In that Psalm's same stanza, Psalm 118, it says, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Verse 26. They undoubtedly use messianic language concerning Christ. And also the use of the word Hosanna add a messianic flavor to it. That Greek word's root comes from the idea conveyed in the Hebrew language of Psalm 118, verse 25, which says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. It uses both an expression of welcoming the Messiah and appealing to Him for deliverance. Jews on festival customarily recited the great Hallel, Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, and they celebrated the Passover along with the Feast of the Tabernacle and the Feast of Dedication. At Passover, the priests would wave willow branches in solemn procession around the altar, burnt offering, crying, O Lord, help us! O help us! 
and the willow branches became known as hosannas. And all of this was associated with the expectancy of the Messiah, the great deliverer of Israel. And so the perception of Jesus was not one of a suffering servant, as explained so often by the prophets, like in Isaiah and Psalms, but that of a great military king or warrior king. And their dreams focused on a Messiah that would free them from the tyranny of Rome, expand their borders with military power. So the crowd was right in what they confessed, since they echoed Scripture, but they were wrong in what they perceived or believed about the Messiah. You know, people can say the right thing while holding a wrong perception of the truth. And that's why the Scripture makes such much out of not just one's confession, but one's walk with the Lord. You can say, I'm a Christian. But your walk, your daily life, needs to follow the Christian lifestyle. Notice, secondly, the worthy of honor. The religious leaders understood the honor given to Christ since they were sore displeased, it says here. Uh, That is kind of a mild way of saying they were indignant. They demanded Jesus to silence them. But Christ received their accolades. Verbally they confessed, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Visually they expressed adoration and submission. The disciples laid their coats on the donkeys and he sat on their coats and most of the crowd would spread their coats on the road and cut branches from the trees and spread them over the road and We find an occasion in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13 when Jehu was anointed king of Israel and his followers took their garments and placed them on the bare steps for his feet to to express their submission to him. But by sheer numbers and actions, here is one of the most remarkable displays of honor to Christ in the New Testament. Though they confessed Christ to be worthy of honor as the Messiah, they unfortunately did not think through their demonstrations of Christ's worth. Now we can suppose that many praised Jesus for his power to heal the sick, to raise those from the dead, to feed the hungry, just as many do so today. Many would have praised him for great moral teaching, just as many, many people do today. (coughs) And though Jesus received their praise, He did not conform to their desires. And though it was right for the masses in our day to revere Jesus Christ, to honor His name, He will not be conformed to the world's design for a Messiah. His destiny in Jerusalem was the cross. The multitudes scorned the suffering of Christ for sinners. They denied Him as the sovereign Lord. And copycats remained through the years. Plenty of today's secularists admire Jesus Christ's moral teachings, some of it is that that is, and they talk warmly of his acts of social consciousness, but they don't want anything to do with the cross. They deny him as the Lord. And yet that's why he entered Jerusalem, to receive the honor of a suffering servant who is crowned as Lord of all. Notice thirdly, a remarkable prophet 
the city of Jerusalem shook. As I said before, that means moved or agitated, that quaked with the excitement of the crowd. Who is this? What an opportunity the multitudes had at this point to give confession of Christ and to clearly identify Him as the promised one who would bear their sins in His own body in the face of divine judgment. But they didn't. They said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazarene, Nazareth of Galilee. Prophet, yes, but more than a prophet. Indeed, Jesus was the Christ, is the prophet that revealed God to us in those last days spoken unto us by his son, Hebrews 1, 2. He's also priest that has mediated the way to God for us, becoming both sacrifice and the one who offers it. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself, and he is the king who rules forever over the eternal kingdom, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19 tells us. Let me ask you this morning. Are you one of those that has your own perception of Jesus Christ, but one that doesn't line up with the Scripture? Would you dare to hang on to a mere perception in in face of God's Judgment? I think we need to learn a lesson from the multitudes here. A true confession of Christ means nothing apart from a right perception of who He is. We can confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord indeed, but if we don't believe in our hearts that God hath raised Him from the dead, we must have the right perception. Notice, thirdly, realities of the king. Realities. Now, we're not just talking about some myth here or some story or some kind of made-for-TV reality show. This is the truth of God's Word. This is not pretend. This is reality. And right under their noses, the multitude thronging the road into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives failed to grasp the realities of Christ. They thought only of their material needs, but not their souls. If they could be just freed from the yoke of Rome, then life would be wonderful. And maybe we think that too. If we could just be freed from the yoke of Washington, D.C., we'd be, we'd be all right, right? Yet there are things worse than being in bondage to a government, or another nation. Because when you are a slave to sin, and when the wages of sin runs full course in your life, you will gladly trade that destiny to be under the tyranny even of of a nation like North Korea. As bad as that nation is, I do not minimize it, because they pale in comparison with facing the wrath of God for eternity. Consider this Christ that the multitudes failed to understand. There was prophetic fulfillment here. The detailed description of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, not on a mighty steed, but on a colt of a donkey. 
that was laid out 500 years. And we already read Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which gave us that. It said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And that word Zion is used as a synonym for Jerusalem and its people. The people had returned from exile to Jerusalem, but their heads hung low for all that had taken place. And the prophet sets their minds on God's promise of deliverance. It would not come with the might of Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great, but in gentleness and humility. Just think for a minute about all the conquering kings of history. I know you want to forget all your lessons of history, if you possibly could, and you probably don't remember all those kings, but you think about all the kings and the rulers over the years in this world. Who among them were gentle? Who among them were so humble as to ride a donkey's colt in a solemn procession? Can you imagine one of these kings or these queens riding a donkey in their coronation procession? I can't. Christ's kingdom is not of this world with all its pride and its vainglory. He who is gentle and humble in submitting himself to the cross teaches us that The way of the cross for every believer is found in gentleness, self-control, and humility. We also notice divine disclosure here. It may seem strange to us that Jesus made such a public showing in this triumphal entry. He had spent much time deflecting attention of the masses, but now he publicly reveals himself. He publicly identifies himself as the coming king that was foretold by the prophets. He received the praise according to the, uh, that accorded a messianic king. Hosanna to the son of David. And to accept it as an imposter would be at the height of arrogance and deceit. But Christ's public acceptance of this kind of praise openly revealed him as God's Messiah. He was either a deceiver or he is Lord. And that's what he called himself, the Lord, to his disciples. I wonder this morning, do you confess him as Lord and Christ? Your Lord and Christ. There's also certain rule. Jesus received the welcome of king because he is king. He understood the nature of his kingdom, though those about him did not. The triumph of his kingdom or his kingship is yet to be fully understood by the nations, but we can be assured as the scripture pulls back the curtains of the future for our glance that one day the king will be revealed from heaven. And this time he's not going to ride humbly on a donkey's colt, but he's going to come triumphantly from heaven on a white horse. And Rather than the gentleness of his first coronation, he will come with eyes of a flame of fire and on his head many diadems. No longer will he wear the peasant garb riding on a poor donkey, but he will be clothed, as it tells us in Revelation, clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven will follow him as the rules, as he rules the nations with a rod of iron. You may treat this king with disrespect and deceit today, But the day will come when that will not be the case. This king will rule the nations and no man can hide from his rule. 
And so as we conclude this morning, Jesus Christ came in triumph, humility, and divine purpose as he aimed for the cross. And this was the scene of our triumph, our eternal triumph as well. And to those of you this morning who trust in Christ and rest in his redemptive work, Christ will indeed be a gentle king. But to those who refuse him, you will discover his rule of iron. I wonder this morning, do you know him as your king? Let's bow in prayer.